Hey, Northridge, how are you guys? Good to see you. My name is Pete. I'm one of the pastors here at Northridge. I want to welcome all of you. I want to welcome those of you watching online as well. We are so glad that you guys are with us. So last week, we kicked off a new series called A Thrill of Hope, and we talked about how hope changes everything. And I believe that to the very core of my being, that um, hope is so important for every one of us. Last week, we talked about hope for those that are waiting. Today, we're going to talk about hope for those that have a past. And that really includes all of us, right? We all have some kind of past. Some of us are maybe a little more proud of our past than others, but we have it. And the Christmas story really is a story all about hope. And I think for most of us, when we think about the Christmas story, we tend to think about uh, Mary, Joseph, baby Jesus in the manger. We think about shepherds. We think about the wise men. We think about the star you know, we, we think about those things that we tend to uh, visualize in the nativity scene. But what's really interesting is that when the New Testament opens up in the book of Matthew, Matthew chooses to start somewhere a little different than that. He kind of sets it up in a unique way. And we're going to look at why he set it up the way he set it up and what that means for each of us as we celebrate Christmas this year. Um, Matthew starts with a genealogy. Now, I know that when it comes to, like, let's just be honest. Most people skip the genealogies in Scripture. Uh, you just you think it's like a free pass. Uh, if you're reading the Bible and you land on one of those long genealogies, you're just kind of like, oh, good, I'll skip to the next chapter. Uh, I get that. I totally understand that. But there's a reason that they're there. And specifically, Matthew's genealogy gives us some incredible insight into what Christmas is really all about. Matthew knew that he would be speaking primarily to a Jewish audience. And that Jewish audience had, for generation after generation after generation, been told all these different prophecies that were in the Old Testament that were leading up to the birth of Jesus. And one of those prophecies or promises was that the Christ child, the Savior, would come from the line of King David. So it's very important from him early on to establish that Jesus did come from the line of David. It gave credibility to this whole story that Jesus actually was the Christ. What's interesting though about this genealogy, it's very different than most ancient genealogies. Anybody around here study ancient gene genealogies? Anybody? Nope, okay, good. So you're just gonna believe everything I tell you anyway. So um, if you studied ancient gene genealogies, one of the things that you would notice would be that only kings, emperors, and super wealthy people had genealogies back there. Very different than today, right? Today we have computer programs and all kinds of different things, apps that you can use to try to track your family history and story. But back then, they were the only ones that could afford a historian to actually establish a gene genealogy. Another interesting thing about ancient genealogies is that there's often gaps in them. And the gaps are there not because they couldn't figure out the connection in the family tree, but because those kings or emperors or super wealthy people intentionally left out people in their family line that they were embarrassed about. Now, I think most of us understand that, right? Because almost everybody has somebody in their family they kind of wish could be left out of the family tree, right? You got a cousin or mother-in-law or somebody that you're like, it would be best if we just kind of forgot about that individual, right? Everybody has characters. I had one in, in my family, my great-grandma, Grandma Willie. She was married eight times. 
Uh, she was one of these just interesting characters. Of like, uh, I remember when I was a kid, every once in a while we would take her out to eat, not very often, uh, but every once in a while we would take her out to eat, and she would always steal, steal the silverware. Like from any restaurant we went, at the end, she would just literally, it was dirty, right? She would put it in her purse and take it. She just felt like that was hers because she used it. She, she was a character, right? And I wouldn't intentionally leave her out of my family history, but she's one of those characters, right? Now, what's interesting about this genealogy, as you're about to see, we're going to look at it. Matthew doesn't do that. In fact, it's almost as if he intentionally weaves into this genealogy people who were an embarrassment to the entire Old Testament and an embarrassment to the Jewish race. So let's just kind of walk through it together. For some of you, this is going to be the first time you've ever read a genealogy out of the Bible, all right? This is Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Here's the first interesting name that pops up is Judah. Judah and his brothers. He did have 12 brothers. One of those brothers was a guy by the name of Joseph. If you grew up in church, you've heard stories about Joseph, right? Joseph was an amazing dude. I mean, he went through a lot. He was falsely accused of rape. He was forgotten about in prison. Like, and through all of it, he was faithful to God. Like, we do whole sermons. We do whole series on Joseph's life and a story because his faithfulness to God was unmatched. We could have thrown Joseph in there, but instead it's Judah. It's like God's weaving all these kind of outcast characters who are part of the family tree that led to the birth of Jesus, right? You keep reading, it says Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now these names like Tamar mean nothing to most of you, but you have to understand 2,000 years ago to the Jewish people, they knew all these characters. They knew all the stories behind them. They knew what they had done. And so when they read Tamar's name, they were like, what? She, she's a part of this story? She's a part of the history of Jesus's family? Are you kidding me? Because what they knew about Tamar is at one time, she dressed up like a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law and then bore illegitimate twins with him right? And so Matthew's like, hey, you guys remember Tamar? Yep, Merry Christmas. She's a part of the story. <laughs> Perez is the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Again, they're like, Ra Rahab, she's a part of the story. Are you kidding me? Because where Tamar at least was like pretending to be a prostitute, Rahab actually was. I'm, I'm, it's just hitting me. I've said the word prostitute more times today than I've probably said it in my entire life. But she was. And you know what else? She wasn't even Jewish. She was a Canaanite. And somehow God used her and used her story and redeemed her past. And she became a part of the Christmas story. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. So then he finally gets there. Right? There's the connection. The whole deal, the whole genealogy exists here to make the connection between Jesus coming from the line of King David. And he says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And now everybody's really leaning into this story because do you remember who Uriah's wife was? It was a woman by the name of Bathsheba. And that, friends, is a very sordid story because Bathsheba is the woman that David uh, had an affair with and not only had an affair but then went and killed her husband, Uriah, so that he could be with her. 
And Matthew, who's laying this story out, could have used a lot of different descriptors, right, to describe who, who King David was. He could have said, King David, you know, the man after God's own heart. He could have said, remember King David? Like, he, he was the one who, you know, killed Goliath. You remember King David? He was the author of the Psalms. He could have said any of those things, and they all would have been accurate descriptors of who King David was. But he chooses to use this descriptor, this David who committed adultery with Uriah's wife and then killed him. And so you have to ask, why is Matthew doing that? Like, is he just trying to stir up trouble? Is he trying to create controversy here? Is, is you know, Matthew like the TMZ of gospel writers? You know, he's just trying to put all the junk. No, 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 listen, it's very strategic. All of this is important because Matthew lived in a culture that ironically is not that different from our culture today where everyone was trying to build an approach to God. Everybody's approaching God with, here's my goodness, here's my good works, right? Check this off, check this off, check this off. God, aren't I a good person? Am I now worthy of your love? Am I worthy of your acceptance? Am I worthy to be saved? Everybody's approaching this whole thing from their own righteousness. And Matthew is going out of the way at the very beginning of this book before he even gets into the details of the Christmas story to set up to say, hey, this is no ordinary story. This isn't like religion 2.0. This isn't the Old Testament part two. This is completely different. And this old approach to coming to God based on your righteousness and your good works and following the law, that's done. That's a different story. This is new. And he's going out of his way to make sure that people understand that the story of Christmas is not a story about gaining access to God based on your goodness and your promises. Now, I also think for Matthew, it was very personal. Because if you know anything about Matthew, who was a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, he was also a tax collector by trade. And listen, nobody really likes tax folks, you know, even today. But back then, especially didn't like tax folks. By the way, there's some tax people probably in this room right now. I, I mentioned in the last service, I had, I had never met somebody who actually was a tax person like that worked for the IRS and a dude came up to me after the service and confessed that he is an IRS agent. That's the second one I've met this weekend. Last night I met a guy who's retired IRS so like he felt like he could come clean because he wasn't doing the job anymore. But the one I met last service was the real deal, right? And so if, don't raise your hand if you work for the IRS. I'm totally cool with you, but somebody on your row may not be, all right? So just keep that kind of tucked into yourself. But back then, listen, it was different. It, it wasn't like people who were fulfilling their civil responsibility in today's world. Back then, they were crooks, complete crooks. In fact, they were almost always Jewish people who had betrayed their own people, their own faith, and they were collaborating with the Roman oppressors. Right? And so basically a, a tax collector was someone who said, I care so much about just getting rich. I don't care about anybody else. I'll betray my faith. I'll betray my people. And I'm going to collaborate with the Romans, with the pagans. That was Matthew. And then one day Jesus shows up at his little tax toll booth. And he looks Matthew right in the eye and says, Matthew, I know you. I know your history. I know your past. I know what you've done. I know how you've sold out your own people and your own faith. But Matthew, I want you to follow me. Matthew, I want you to be my friend. I want you to be a part of my community. And scripture tells us 
right here in Luke chapter five, Matthew's response says he got up, he left everything and he followed him. See, this is personal for Matthew because for Matthew, what he knows is that Jesus changed everything. What Matthew knows is that there had never been a movement like this ever before. And this is kind of hard for you and I to understand, right? Because a lot of us kind of grew up uh, in our culture today with Christianity. We get it, we understand it, but you have to get this, that at this time period, there had never been a movement like this ever. There had never been a movement where just anybody, regardless of their skin color, their heritage, their past, they were welcome to be a part. They were welcome. And Matthew got this. He knew that Jesus changed everything, that now because of the birth of Jesus, that everyone was welcome because nobody was perfect. Now there's two groups of you here today that I really wanna speak to for just a minute. And the first group are those of you who have never received the message of Christmas. You've never received the message of grace into your life. And I want you to understand that there is a, um, there's a darkness that's inside of me. And there's a darkness inside of you. And it's called sin. And this sin is a really big deal to a holy and perfect God, right? And part of the Christmas message is that our perfect and holy God looked down on this earth and he saw the darkness. He saw the sin. And he doesn't send a rebuke. He doesn't send an idea. He doesn't send an educational system. He doesn't send a warning. He doesn't send a politician. He doesn't send a new religion. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, the one with who all the hopes and the fears of the entire human race are bound up in. And part of what we have to understand is that all of us in this community have sinned that we're all on the exact same level at the foot of the cross. We all stand in need of the forgiveness of Jesus. And that forgiveness is available to everybody. And I've always kind of like dreamed of being a part of a community where there's no hiding and there's no pretense, there's no reputation building because we're all just sinners in desperate need of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And too often I think in Christianity we offer Limited grace, conditional grace, strings attached grace. But what I want you to understand is that when God looks at you, no matter what your past is, no matter what you did five years ago or five minutes ago, that when God looks at you, he doesn't see a failure. He doesn't see a rebel. He doesn't see a screw up. He sees his son, his daughter, complete, whole, forgiven, restored, completely. Your sin does not make you second class. But some of you carry this weight, right, as if it does. Some of you have started to believe that your past is so dark that you could never be accepted, that you could never be forgiven. And if you're tempted to think that, I think what Jesus would say to you today, if he was standing in front of you, would be like, Are you, have you seen my family? Have you seen how messed up they were? Right? Have you seen what I can do, how I can restore, how I can forgive? And if you really wanna embrace the message of Christmas, it means that essentially what you do is you transfer your trust from your good works, from your righteousness, right, over to Jesus' works and his righteousness. Because you're never gonna be good enough. Never, you're not. You're never gonna be good enough. And what you have to begin to understand is, listen, good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven, 
right? That's the way that this works. And so trusting in Jesus just means that you admit that you're a sinner, you admit that that darkness exists, right? And you transfer that trust from your good works and your platform and your approach to God. And you say, it's not about me, it's about Jesus and about what he did. And I just feel like in a moment like this that it'd be a shame if I didn't give some of you that opportunity to receive that forgiveness in your life in this very moment. So I'm gonna ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a second. And if you're here today or you're watching this online right now and you've never received Jesus Christ into your heart, you've never asked for his forgiveness, yeah, I don't, I don't wanna embarrass you. You don't, you don't have to stand up. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to come forward. Just sitting wherever you are right now, whether you're here in the church, you're sitting in a coffee shop somewhere watching this, you can just pray a simple prayer in your heart. Maybe pray something like this. Dear God, with as much as I understand about you in this moment, I wanna invite you into my life. And I do have a past. And I do have a certain sin, a certain darkness inside of me. And I wanna ask you to forgive me for that. I wanna ask for what your son Jesus did on the cross to be applied to my life. I wanna make you the Lord of my life. And I understand that this is not about my good works or my promises or me checking anything off a list. This is just in faith, coming before you and surrendering my life and asking you to be the Lord of my life, to forgive me of my sins. Amen. That's simple. And the Bible tells us in Romans that when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so for many of you in this very moment right now, a miracle just occurred and you received the message of Christmas, the message of Jesus, the message of his forgiveness. But there's a second part to this, right? Because I said there's a second group I wanted to talk to. And you're the group of people who've already received the message of Christmas. You've received Jesus in your life. But now it's time for you to extend the Christmas message to others. And I think sometimes people get a little confused about what spiritual maturity is really about. And we convince ourselves that to be spiritual mature means I'm at church every week. I give. I pray. I'm in a small group. I serve, all those are great things. And I think they are an important part of following Jesus. But that's not what makes you spiritually mature. If you look at the life of Jesus, he was on a mission. And if you look at the people that he spent time with, the majority of the time that he spent investing in people, he invested in people who were far from God. He invested in people who were completely lost. He invested in people who had been rejected by society. They didn't have a place to fit. That's who Jesus was. And I'm telling you, there is no greater adventure in this life than pointing somebody towards Jesus and his grace. There's nothing like it. I'm telling you, it's kind of addictive. And when you feel and sense God using you in your life to point someone towards Jesus, and listen, it's not always easy. Sometimes it's a little bit uncomfortable, right? Sometimes it doesn't go the way that you hope to. Sometimes it will break your heart. But there's nothing like this. And I'm telling you, when a church loses that vision, when a church starts caring more about their own agenda and their own style and their own comforts, that church is in death mode. And we are very blessed to be a part of Northridge Church where for over 30 years, Pastor Brad has made this vision so clear that this church does not exist just for us. 
Although we get a lot, a lot of benefits from it, don't we? Being a part of this community. But that's not why we exist. We exist to reach people who are far from God. And almost everything that happens around this place is done with strategy and intentionality to reach those people who felt like they never had hope of the forgiveness of Jesus. I read a story, oh gosh, it was probably 15 years ago, that kind of rocked my world. And uh, I, I want to share that story with you. I, I wouldn't normally like read a story in a message. I would just kind of tell the story. But this one's kind of unique, and I just want to read it to you. It's written by a guy named Tony Campolo. Uh, some of you might remember him. He was, he's a, by trade, he's actually a sociologist. He's a professor at a university, teaches sociology. But he's also a Christian speaker and author. And uh, I don't agree with everything that Tony writes and speaks about. But this particular story really kind of rocked me. So if it's all right with you, can I just read it to you? I don't know why pastors ask questions like that. And what are you going to say? No? (laughs) You're here. You're kind of stuck. But listen, don't listen. I want you to kind of lean into it, all right? Because this is a great story. It takes place in Hawaii. He's over there. He's speaking uh, at a conference. And this is what he writes. He said, I woke up at about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I was hungry, and I wanted something to eat. But in a bustling city like Honolulu at three o'clock in the morning, it's hard to find anything that's open. Up a side street, I spotted this greasy spoon and I went in. It was one of those dirty places that didn't even have booths, just a row of stools sitting at the counter. I sat down a bit uneasy and I didn't touch the menu. It was one of those plastic menus where grease had piled up on it. I knew that if I opened it, something extraterrestrial might crawl out of it. All of a sudden, this very heavy set, unshaved man with a cigar came out of the back room, put down his cigar and said, I'm Harry, what do you want? He said, I'd like a cup of coffee and a donut. So there I am, 3.30 in the morning, drinking my coffee and eating my dirty donut and into the place comes about eight or nine prostitutes. See, I said the word again. (laughs) I'm telling you, it's all over the place. It's a, I apologize to those of you with kids who have some explaining to do on the way home, but he writes, he said it, not me, right? He's, it's a small place. They sit on either side of me, and I tried to disappear. The woman on my immediate right was very boisterous, and she said to her friend, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend sarcastically barked back, so what do you want me to do? Do you want a cake or a birthday party? And the woman said, look, why do you have to put me down? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life, and I don't expect to have one now. That's all I needed I waited until they left and I called Harry over and I asked, do they come in here every night? He said, yes. I said, the one on the right next to me, Agnes, tomorrow's her birthday. What do you think about decorating the place? When she comes in tomorrow night, we'll do a birthday party. What do you think? He said, mister, that is brilliant. It's brilliant. He called his wife out of the back room. Jan, come out here. I want you to meet this guy. He wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. She came out and took my hand and squeezed it tightly and said, you wouldn't understand this, mister, but Agnes, she's one of the good people, one of the kind people in this town, and nobody ever does anything for her. This is a good thing. So I got there the next morning at about 2.30. I had brought, uh, bought streamers at Kmart, strung them up all over the place. I made a big poster that said, happy birthday, Agnes, and I put it behind the counter. I had the place spruced up. Everything was set. Everything was ready. Jan, who does the cooking, she'd gotten the word out on the street, and by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was squeezed into the diner. People, it was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. 
3.30 in the morning, in comes Agnes and her friends. I've got everything set. Everybody's ready. As they come through the door, we all yelled, happy birthday, Agnes. In addition, we start cheering like mad. I've never seen anyone so stunned. Her knees buckled. They steadied her and sat her down on the stool, and we all started singing happy birthday. When they brought out the cake, she lost it and started to cry. Harry just stood there with the cake and said, all right, knock it off, Agnes. Blow out the candles. Come on, blow out the candles. She tried, but she was crying so hard that she couldn't. So he blew out the candles, gave her the knife, and said, cut the cake, Agnes. She sat there for a long moment, and she said to me, Mr., if it's okay, I don't want to cut the cake. What I'd like to do, Mr., is take the cake home and show it to my mother. Could I do that? I said, it's your cake. She stood up, and I said, do you have to do it now? She said, I live two doors down. Let me take the cake home, show it to my mother, and I promise you I'll bring it right back. As she moved towards the door carrying the cake as though it was the holy grail, she pushed through the crowd and out the door, and the door swung slowly shut, and there was stunned silence. You talk about an awkward moment. Everyone was motionless, everyone was still, and I didn't know what to say. So I finally said, what do you say we pray? It's weird looking back on it now, you know, a sociologist leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning in a diner, but it was the right thing to do. I prayed that God would deliver her from what dirty, filthy men had done to her. I said, God, deliver her and make her into a new creation because I've got a God who can make us new no matter where we've been or what we've been through. When I finished my prayer, Harry leaned over the counter and said, Campalo, you told me you were a sociologist. You're no sociologist, you're a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And one of those moments when you come up with just the right words, I said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. I'll never, yeah. I'll never forget his response. He looked back at me and said, no, you don't. No, you don't, because I would join a church like that. I just have to believe, friends, as awkward as that story is, that that's exactly the kind of church Jesus came to create. And deep down inside, while all of us have a past, and some of us have a past that we wish we could forget, we wish we could hide, we wish we could make it completely go away, the reality is inside of every human being, deep down inside of our heart, what we long for more than anything else is to be fully known and yet fully loved, right? And you can only be loved to the extent that you are known, right? That's true, right? Isn't it true for those of you who kind of have this secret past, even the people in your life who genuinely care about you, when they say things to you like, I love you, it's hard for you to receive because what you're thinking is if they actually knew all the stuff I've done, they wouldn't say that. Or you can only be loved to the extent that you are known. And that is the beauty of God's grace and his love and his mercy and how it's unlike any other love we've ever experienced. See, in him, we are fully known and we are fully loved. That's the cry of the heart of every human being. And Christ's plan from the very beginning was to win the whole world, right? I'm gonna make every single person I touch so magnetic with love that they're gonna draw others. 
And we have this commission for those of us that have received the grace and love and mercy of Jesus Christ. Acts 1 says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This was his plan from the very beginning that those of us who claim to follow Jesus and we've received his grace would then become conduits of that love and grace for other people. Those of us who have been rescued, we turn into rescuers. We pursue those who are addicted and lost and hurting and oppressed and people who desperately need a second chance in life. That's what we're to do, right? And, and I just think that once you get that, right, once you understand that that's how God wants to use you in your life, you begin to understand that every other earthly activity pales in comparison to being a part of God's plan and vision for your life and extending grace and mercy to the people around you. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And I'm not proposing that you go find a diner to hang out at at 3.30 in the morning. Probably not the wisest idea. But I'm telling you, just open your eyes to look around you in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. There are so many hurting people that have a hard time getting over their past. And they need to know about the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ. And again, we are all privileged because this church, by design, right, is very strategic about partnering with you to help you reach your lost friends and neighbors and family members. We put on events like Gloria Christmas. We have Christmas Eve coming up in a couple weeks. In fact, we have these really cool little invite cards. You can grab a handful of these if you want to out in the lobby. And we just make it so easy, right? Just invite someone to Christmas Eve. If you've never been a part of one of our Christmas Eve services, I'm telling you, they're phenomenal. They're fantastic. And you will hear all about the love and grace and mercy of Jesus. It, 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 it's incredible. But don't come alone, right? Why not bring somebody with you? Again, we've created these tools for you so that you can not come alone and bring someone with you to experience maybe Christmas for the very first time. And I just wanna challenge you to let God use your life, to be a conduit of his love and grace to the people around you. Don't let this be a Christmas that's just for you and just for your family, but extend it to other people who desperately need it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. Ah, gosh, we thank you for just the opportunity to gather. And I think sometimes we probably take for granted how special this place is and how we get to come here and we get to worship together and um, we get to share together. And we're reminded that this is a place where we're all on level ground at the foot of the cross. We all have a past and we're all in desperate need of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And God, I'm so grateful today for that. I'm grateful for the individuals who prayed today for the very first time to receive your forgiveness. And God, I pray that we'll walk out of here with a, a new intention, that that grace and mercy was not just for us, but the intention was that we'd be a conduit of that grace and mercy to the people around us who desperately need it. And there are so many people in this hurting world that just need to hear about the hope and the mercy and the grace that you offer. So God, may we be your instruments in this hurting world. That's been your plan from the very, very beginning. Use us, use our lives, use our words, 
use our actions, use our love that we extend to others to bring people to you. For it's in your holy and your precious name that we pray, amen. We are so grateful that you guys are here today. Hey, one last thing though, normally, uh, we want you to hang out here as long as you possibly can, fellowship with each other. But we got a GOC show coming up in a few minutes, and we got to flip this whole place. So, look, they're already listening to me. If you could take off as fast as you can, <laughs> that would be great. God bless you. Have a great week. <laughs>